The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Spring Seminar, Medical Issues and Biblical Counseling. I'm going to try to help the guy out who's uh, in the bookstore and help you out maybe a little bit too. Uh, from the last um, lecture, uh, a good resource is um, the Christian Guide to Psychological Terms. Uh, it's been revised. Um, oh, Let's see, 2014. So this is recent. Um, it's by the Ashers. It takes the uh, terms used in the DSM and then converts them to what they think it, uh, the biblical equivalent of it is. And so I'd, I'd encourage you, if you're you know looking for a resource like that, um, this is a good one. Um, if you're new to biblical counseling um, uh, and interested in the movement, I think Heath Lambert's book, The Biblical Counseling Movement After Adams, is a, is a good book. It's a good read. Uh, so you might want to consider that. Now that's from the last lecture. Um, the next lecture, uh, counseling people who are, have psychological diagnoses, I think um, um, Christ and Your Problems by Adams is a good resource. It's probably one of the early um, pamphlets that I give people. Uh, talk, it's an exegesis of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Um, you know, there's no temptation or test that's taken you, but such as is common to man, God's faithful, and will endeavor to make a way through it uh, so that you can bear up under it. Uh, and it's a good resource. Uh, I, I give this to people on their, you know, usually in the first visit, have them underline 10 sentences, as Randy Patton used to say, not 9, not 11, but 10. And then uh, come back and we'll talk about them. Um, so that's another good resource. Then, uh, of course, there's, there's this book, Good Mood, Bad Mood. I, fairly good author, I think. Um, and so if <laughs> the, uh, the guy who runs the bookstore and my publisher would probably both be deeply grateful if you would take, those, take some with you. All right, let's, uh, let's get moving here. Um, the thing about my book, Good Mood, Bad Mood, that you may find most useful is the bibliography. I, I reread it every once in a while, and I find that I still like it. I, uh, I had a good editor. Sue Lutz was an excellent editor, and she forced it. was like having an English teacher sitting on my shoulder. You know, you need, need to rewrite this paragraph. And some people who write books hate that. They hate editors. Me, I, I enjoyed it. You know, it's like, tell me what you think I ought to do. I can probably manage it. And um, she uh, saw to it that the footnotes were in on every page because many of the things that I say in the book are somewhat controversial, and, but all of it is backed up by um, footnoted uh, peer-reviewed journal articles uh, from the secular um, researchers. So, uh, you know, probably the, you know, for a lot of people, the most useful thing about the book is the, is the bibliography. So, I, you know, you might want to go look at it from that viewpoint. First 13 chapters is, is about depression. The last two chapters are about bipolar disorder. I actually started writing that book. It took me five years. My intent was to write a book about bipolar disorder. But, you know, the time and the uh, publisher had its way. So I, at least I got two chapters about bipolar disorder. All right, let's get going. I, I, I need to finish by 11.25, and I think I might be able to do that, or at least by 11.30. How, to counsel people, how do you counsel people who have the psychiatric DSM diagnoses that we just talked about in the last week or in the last lecture. There's a little overlap between these two lectures, but once we get to the case study, it'll be, uh, I think it'll be very useful and kind of fun. Um, as, as I said earlier, um, we can skip that. We need to 
keep our terms clear. When we're talking about a medical illness, we're talking about someone who has a pathologically proven, uh, you know, demonstrable uh, change in, in their body at the cell level that results in a difference in, in function. As I said in the last lecture, that's not always possible. We are, we're not just smart enough to be able to look inside a human brain while they're having a migraine headache and figure out what causes it. We can, we can actually see the results, though, if you, you know, if you can get somebody's head into an MRI scanner uh, during or after a, a, um, a migraine headache. You can see the edema that uh, is the result of the, uh, of the passage of the event that goes through the human brain and causes the, uh, causes the headache. So, but medical illnesses are those which have known pathology. Then psychological diagnoses are those which are... Um, uh, made from the uh, DSM-5 criteria. And basically, you know, making a diagnosis out of the DSM-5 criteria um, is um, uh, a process of comparing the individual to uh, the criteria that exist. Um, most of us who do very much of it um, know those criteria well enough that we don't have to have them sitting in front of us and we can write down as we, as we talk. But I, I think it is uh, very useful, you know, if you're, if you're going to say someone, if you want to use the societal definition of depression and you want to say somebody has it, then you really ought to go to the trouble to know the DSM criteria and use it. it it's much the same thing as a strep screen, a rapid strep screen, you know. It's like you go to the doctor's office and, and you, you have a sore throat and you open your throat and it looks red. And I mean, he has one of two choices then. He can say, well, I could guess this is probably strep. I'll give you the medicine. Or he could actually do the rapid strep screen and save you the money for the antibiotic and the exposure, the needless exposure of your body to the antibiotic. Um, so if you have it in the same way, we ought to be doing those rapid strep screens on sore throats so that we don't over-medicate people. Um, if you're going to make a diagnosis of depression or a psychiatric diagnosis, you ought to at least know the criteria well enough to, to say it if you're, if you're going to tell someone that you think they have that. Then, um, unlike the folks with medical disease, as I said, the psychiatric diagnoses do not, ha or diagnoses do not have, uh, generally have underlying pathology, but um, most of these uh, folks generally are taking medication. Um, when they come to us, uh, as I said last night, uh, I'll, and I'll talk about in a moment, taking medicine is a Christian liberty issue. Um, and um, it's, as, I, as I do counseling, most of the people that I counsel have already been to the doctor and are already taking medicine. And the reason why they're in my office is because it didn't work very well. Yes, if, if it had worked, they wouldn't have been there. And so... Um, then, um, grateful to be able to help people who are in both categories of uh, both psychiatric and medical, medical diagnoses, uh, but it is important for us to be able to differentiate between the two if we're going to serve both of them well. Um, it's important to understand the labels. Uh, it is also important to um, examine those labels in the light of Scripture. You know, what, what does the behavior mean as far as, far as looking at it in, the, in Scripture? As we do this, we need to approach um, dealing with folks who are struggling with um, um, either psychiatric or medical uh, uh, with some uh, compassion and humility. I, um, 
I, I like to say that when people come in who are drowning in some DSM-5 diagnosis kind of problem of life, that I really try to do my best to recognize that they are fellow sufferers and to treat them with grace. I try to treat them like expensive china, you know, very carefully, because I know that the words that I say will have an impact on their life. So I want to choose them well, choose them with grace and love and mercy. We are really grateful for objective science. As I said, you know, the most, some of the most exciting things that I see today uh, are uh, that have to do with uh, research in uh, psychiatric diagnoses. I have absolutely no fear that somebody is going to discover something about medical science that's an, a fact that's going to affect the outcome of biblical counseling. Zero to none. As other people, I know that some folks have struggled with that whole idea, but not me. I, I, I think the Bible is absolutely true, and anything that we find in science that is true will be a, a benefit, um, particularly as, such as we talked about schizophrenia in the last hour. Always keep in mind that good people differ on the subject of, you know, the relationship between medical science and, uh, and uh, biblical counseling. I know this personally. I've spent the last 20 or so years living in the uh, space in between. Uh, biblical counseling and medicine, and at times I find myself being shot at from both sides. Um, and, and so we know that good people differ when it comes to making a, a difference between a diagnosis of, uh, of calling a diagnosis of depression or ADHD or anxiety disorder a medical problem or a spiritual problem. And so we should be, we should be graceful as we, as we talk about it. Now, how do they make a psychological diagnosis? How do people make one? Well, many folks who come in for counseling are going to come in and they're already going to have a bunch of labels, most of them. Uh, they get those labels where? Well, they get them from watching television, they get them from their uh, family members, they get them from the neighbors, and they get them from my favorite consultant in life today. Yeah, they get them from the internet, yes. I, I used to say that I gave first opinions you know, people would come in and I would give them a first opinion. Now I'm all just doing second opinions. You know, they, they, they come in and they have the sheet printed out to, to tell me what is wrong with them and what I ought to be doing in response to it. Um, so now I give second opinions and third opinions. Um, the uh, current diagnostic statistic manual, the DSM-5, um, uh, does explain the criteria that people use to make those diagnoses, but it doesn't explain anything about the cause or the treatment of any of the disorders listed in inside. And it was made that way on purpose. Uh, there was a, uh, re a significant revision in 1980 when Robert Spitzer was the um, chairman. And uh, the reason why uh, he did that, he says, was because there were competing theories as to why people got depressed, and so he tried to write the book in a way that wouldn't uh, favor any one of them, which may have been a great idea at the time, but didn't work out that way. There are always unintended consequences. The unintended consequence of taking out cause in the diagnosis of depression has been an explosion of the diagnosis of depression. You, you know, it used to be you had normal sadness and disordered sadness, and, and and, and grieving and things like that, but, but not today. The, um, the difference between a psych diagnosis and a med diagnosis, medical diagnoses, there's a number of organic causes that cause behavior problems. I think my favorite is pica. Anybody here know what pica is? Yes, that's right. That's why kids eat dirt. 
and wallboard and why pregnant women eat whole bags of carrots and gallons of chocolate ice cream all at once and why some people chomp on ice much to the, uh, the gratification of their dentists. You know, they chomp on ice until they bust their teeth. Now, you know, we could take that poor kid who's eating dirt and say that his parents told him not to eat dirt, so therefore he is rebellious. And, and he's definitely a little sinner uh, in rebellion against God. Or we could get a CBC and a serum iron on him, and we'd find out that he was iron deficient and, uh, the re and it was anemic. And if we just replace his iron, he'd quit eating the dirt. Uh, the same would go for the pregnant woman who was eating the bag of carrots and the gallon of ice cream and for the person chomping on the bag of ice. It's all a function of iron deficiency anemia. That's a medical ailment that causes definite changes in behavior. Now, though, when you, when you find an organic cause, uh, a medical diagnosis is given. We do not say that the little kid has dirt eater's disease or that the pregnant woman has whole bag of carrots and chocolate ice cream disease. We say that they are, have iron deficiency anemia once we, we settle in on what the pathology is. The... Um, the diagnosis primarily describes the disease in the body rather than the symptoms. Now, this is an, uh, an important point. Medical science has always been at its, at its best when it has definite pathology to describe a disease. Uh, um, you know, if you have a glucose of 500, you have diabetes. If you have a glucose of 80, you probably don't. Um, when you go to things like fibromyalgia, or, or chronic fatigue syndrome, don't misunderstand me. Anybody in here who carries a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, I'm not saying you don't hurt, all right? Let's just, let's just stop that right there. But we don't have any pathology for fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia used to be a rheumatologic disorder until the rheumatologist fessed up and said there was no inflammation. And since there's no inflammation, it's not a rheumatologic disorder. And they kicked it off to the neurologist, who now call it a disease of, of pain perception which is, sounds a little bit like gobbledygook, doesn't it? Yes, and, and the reason why is because they don't have any pathology either. Eventually, I suspect that somehow it'll get kicked off again to somebody else. Um, the, the problem with that is when you do not have pathology, <clears throat> sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, the treatment can get dangerous <clears throat> because the side effects that you might encounter for the drugs that they might give you for a chronic pain kind of problem um, excuse me, it can be considerable. So then, to qualify as an illness, the condition in question must show damage to the body's physical tissue. Now, that's for physical. Now, how about psychological diagnoses? These are all made on the basis of the DSM, the DSM-5. There are various theories that have been proposed to account for the behavior. There have been three major ones in my lifetime. The uh, first was uh, Sigmund Freud, who must certainly not have gotten along with his mother very well, <laughs> because everything, everything seemed to be written in terms of a uh, domineering mother, you know, or something like that. Um, he he, he single-handedly led psychiatry out of objective medicine and into the swamp uh, of no pathology, where psychiatry remained until, you know, sometime late in the 1970s. Um, you, uh, then, uh, for a second, uh, it was Freud, then it was Skinner. Uh, Skinner who said that we are simply the sum total of our experiences. We are all mice or rats in a maze, and we are what we have been subjected to. And then the last theory, the one that's popular still yet today, is the chemical imbalance theory, which, would I, which I would tell you from a scientific viewpoint is in the rear view mirror of life. 
You know, science is currently driving away from the chemical imbalance theory for a really good reason. It's never been able to be substantiated, in, in fact. So those are the three that are currently popular. You can contrast the difference between making a diagnosis in medicine and the diagnosis in psychological. Uh, for psychological diagnoses in medicine, we start with a disease and it uh, goes to symptoms. In psychology, it starts with symptoms and we back it up to a theory that explains them. So why is this why is this difference significant? You know, what is the big deal? Well, this becomes radically important when the counselee sitting across from you comes with psychological labels and medical problems, particularly if that person is doing poorly. When they've done everything the doctors told them to, when they are taking the medicine as it is prescribed, and they're just no better. Let's talk about a case, case history like that. I have permission a long time ago from this lady to tell you her story. You always get permission to tell their story because if you don't, you end up in an orange jumpsuit and paying a $50,000 fine. And I don't look good in orange, and I don't think I do well in prison. I'm too short. Anyway, um, the uh, lady in question was 40 years old on the first day I saw her. Uh, she was a white female. She gave me permission to share her story. She was a believer, and is a believer. Her sister who came with her uh, was a believer. Uh, sister was a registered nurse. When the woman came into the office that first day, she was slowly starving to death. She came uh, with a diagnosis of depression and anorexia nervosa. She, had, uh, she was in the care of a psychiatrist who meant her nothing but good, but was a little short of what he could do to help her. He, um, she was taking three different medicines at the time, and at the time I saw her, she was slowly dying. Um, her sister who brought her was very instrumental in her eventual deliverance and repentance. She later told me that after the first hour of counseling, she thought I was crazy. <laughs> but they had no place else to go. You know, we were the last stop on the railroad train. They'd been everywhere. They had done everything. And there was nothing, there wasn't, there wasn't any place else to go to talk. So they came back for the second hour. She was so starved when I talked to her that she talked like this all the time. Doesn't that drive you crazy after a while? Yes, I got to do that hour after hour. And the reason why she was talking that slowly was because she didn't have enough sugar in her brain to, to, uh, to power it. She was, she was starting to have the terminal effects of starvation. It was like a 486 computer. How many of you remember 486 computers? Oh, yes. And do you remember the 25 meg hard drive, 250 meg hard drive that you had that was this big and this thick, and that when it wouldn't work very well, you would hit it on the side, or that you would carry it and put it in the freezer? Yeah. And, and then it would start working again a little bit better. And, and what would happen when it got full, folks? What, what, how would the computer run? Very slowly, yes. You could hit that function button and run to the bathroom. You'd go wash your hands, go to the kitchen, make a sandwich, get a Coke, come back, and it would still be running very slowly. That was how she talked all the time. That was just the way she was. 
Uh, the first question, of course, she asked me was if she could quit all her medicine. I don't know what it is about biblical counseling and people who come who think that the only reason why they come to see us is so they can quit all their drugs. <laughs> it just, it amazes me. And, of course, my re immediate response to her was, no, don't you dare do that, for lots of reasons, mostly that uh, all the drugs she was taking had withdrawal effects, and in her situation would only be compounded and made entirely worse if she stopped them uh, abruptly. I did tell her that there was one drug that she could stop using, and that was nicotine. <laughs> yeah, you know, and she'd, if you quit smoking, you'd probably gain weight, too. Um, the, um, it was a dilemma. What was I going to do for her as a counselor? Was I going to be bound by the labels that she brought? You know, if I was bound by the labels she, that she brought, I would have to tell her as a physician that she was being treated in the only known way that we had to help her with the problem that she faced which, of course, was failing, failing at the time. And, and that would have given her absolutely no hope, none. Or well, I, I could choose to ignore the labels because there's no known pathology to substantiate why people get anorexia nervosa uh, and really none for depression. I could, I, could choose to, I could choose to ignore those diagnoses. And this is why the way we make those diagnoses is so very important. You know, if I chose to abide by the diagnoses, I couldn't help her. If I chose to ignore them and simply start looking at her behavior from a biblical viewpoint, I had great opportunity from the scriptures to help that woman. And that was what we did. I used those sentences that I told you in the last hour. Never call anything a, a, a disease that the Bible calls sin. I, I used that sentence in working through her life. And, and I used the other one. I, I would never call anything sin unless the Bible clearly did. And with that, we took off and headed into that woman's life. Now, during the data gathering phase, you need to ask counselee if they understand the process whereby they got the diagnosis. And I'll tell you that most people don't because nobody tells them. You know, generally speaking, they just get told what they have. They, you know, the idea that I compared your behavior to a criteria in a book someplace is probably not known to very many people who carry any, any, di any, any DSM-5 label. When the time is right, you ought to move from uh, secular descriptions to biblical ones. Uh, for my counselee, it was pretty much in the first day um, she, she had this habit. She would come in and she would tell me that, uh, first off, she would tell me that she just wants to die. Um, and, and she was really working pretty hard at it. I mean, you know, half the people who have anorexia nervosa eventually do die. And they, they starve to death or die from complications of, uh, of starvation. Um, and so she would look at me and say, I just want to die. You know, could, couldn't, you, couldn't you all just let me die? And then, then she would say things like, I want to feel better. I just want to feel better. Doesn't God want me to feel better? That, that would be the next thing that she would say. And after a while, I got kind of tired of listening to it. And it dawned on me. I, I can, when someone tells you that they cannot possibly continue to live under the circumstances in which they're currently living or with the struggle that they're faced, they just can't go on, what you really need to ask them is what would the world look like if, if it changed, and you could, you know, that, that's, that, it, what would the world look like if, if it changed, and all of a sudden, you could live with it, so I, I looked at her, and I said, well, what would the world look like if, if it changed, and you felt good, and she looked at me and said, I want my ex-husband back, poof, just like that, yes, 
Exactly. And we all went like this because we knew her ex-husband. He was a drunk. He used to beat her. He used to beat her kids. We thought, good grief, woman, you're so much better off since he's, and besides that, he was already married to someone else. And um, we, we were thinking in terms of that song in South Pacific. Has anybody seen South Pacific in here? Good. The older I get, the less relevant my movie <laughs> references are. If you've never, never seen South Pacific, go to Netflix. Anyway, the, um, there is a scene in which the uh, one woman has been dumped by a guy. And what, what does she sing? Gonna wash that man right out of my hair. Yes, exactly. And that's, that was what we thought this woman should be doing. We thought that she should be happy, but not her. Of course, then idolatry is never logical, is it? No, idolatry is never logical. She, we, we had found out what was driving her anorexia nervosa. It wasn't an underlying disease process in her life. This woman had made a Faustian bargain with the devil about, about what she was willing to do or give up in order to get her ex-husband back. She decided that if she lost 70 pounds, her ex-husband would see her again, and, and she would be skinny, and he would want her and leave his current wife and come back to her. The only, only problem in all of that calculation, the only problem, was that she put her goal weight about 25 pounds on the other side of dead. That was it. Now we, at that point though, we had something to work with and we went to work. All right. Now, you need to speak appropriately with people about their medication when they ask you about it. As I said last night, but I am going to take the time to, to say it again because many of you weren't here. Um, taking medicine is a Romans 14 issue. Do you all know what's in Romans 14? It's, it's an argument at, in a church. Imagine that, a church that has an argument. Um, and it was about uh, vegetarianism versus uh, meat eating. Uh, we're still arguing about that today, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, and the argument was whether or not it was right to eat meat offered to idols or just eat vegetables. And and um, what did Paul have to say about it? Uh, because they were being rather judgmental towards each other, and he said, a pox be on your, both your houses, yes. It doesn't make any difference if you're a vegetarian, it doesn't make any difference if you're a meat eater, period. What does make a difference is that you were being judgmental towards one another, and out of that chapter comes what Christian doctrine? Christian liberty, yes. Christian liberty comes out of that. And when I say Christian liberty, what I mean is that if the Bible does not say something about a choice that we have to make, that we have the privilege, I did not say the right, we have the privilege to make a choice in that regard within the confines of all the rest of Scripture, all the rest of the Bible. It's not just that we can't find a verse about medicine. We have to take every aspect of it and look at it from every aspect of scripture. Christian liberty is not Christian license. So, um, taking medicine is not mentioned in the Bible very much, is it? And specific medicines certainly are not mentioned in scripture. So from that we would say that it is a Christian liberty issue. We, we get to choose. And I would tell you that, you know, unfortunately uh, down through the years a lot of people have been trying to, to make this out as either a right or wrong question. And frankly, it is neither. As Ed Welch said in his book, Blame It on the Brain, a good while back, he said, it's not a matter of right or wrong. The question is, is it wise or unwise? And my uh, response would be even further is, did it work? I mean, you know, the real problem is, is that people have been taking lots of medicine for lots of reasons that have done them absolutely very little good, but given them significant potential for, 
for side effects. So taking medicine is a Romans 14 issue, all right? And I can tell you that counseling people who take medicine is no more difficult than counseling people who don't. Now, you know, I've rarely, I think I've only come across two counselees in 20 years that I couldn't talk to because they were on medication. One, because whenever she sat down in the seat at the table across from me, she would fall asleep. So I wrote a nice little note to the psychiatrist saying this lady can't stay awake when we're, we're counseling. Send it back to the psychiatrist. He changed the medicine and she could stay awake after that. So, a Romans 14 issue. I have to say that over and over again. And the reason why I have to say it over and over again because there are always going to be people who will walk out and say that wasn't what I said. So I hope you're awake and got it this time. A sizable percentage of our counselees are on psychiatric medicine before they ever come to see us. And the reason why they're seeing us is because it didn't work. Uh, in the process of gathering data, you do need to get their medication history. Uh, biblical counselors should never encourage counselees to stop, reduce, or change their medication. I do not do that. I'm a licensed physician. I could, but I do not. I send them, because it's unethical, I send them back to the doctor who started it because he knows why he started it. I don't really. And there may be a really good reason why they're taking that medicine. And if I interpose in there, I, I will have done the patient no good. So send them, they, they go back to their doctor, the prescribing fish, physician. You need to base your conversations uh, with the, um, uh, on a factual evidence when you get down to talking about um, the chemical imbalance issue. Uh, when you talk to people about chemical imbalances, uh, you should keep in mind that they are going to be informed from a different direction that you might be coming from. And so the information that you might give them about chemical imbalances will contradict the cultural concepts. And they are cultural. I can tell you that no psychiatrist who really spends any time reading um, and no research no, nobody in research will tell you that they understand or know what a chemical imbalance is in the human brain. And that comes from Thomas Imsel. Thomas Imsel just retired as the head psychiatrist who ran the National Institute of Mental Health, not the National Institute of Biblical Counseling. He was running the National Institute of Mental Health. And he said in May of 2012, I think in the Philadelphia Inquirer, that uh, up until that time, uh, and for a period of about 50 years, they have been looking for a chemical imbalance and could not find one. It has never been documented to be a factual thing uh, scientifically in our history uh, of medicine. All right, but you should be sympathetic when you talk to people about it because they're coming from the other, other direction. We need to be kind and respectful when we interact with people who have um, theories with which we disagree Sometimes they're just poorly informed, I guess. You know, and then, then, I always liked what Ronald Reagan said about it. He said that he, didn't consider, um, he didn't consider his opponents to be uh, uh, uneducated or uh, unintelligent. He, he just said that, that they believed so many things that weren't true, you know. And, and, I, and I think in, in dealing sometimes with... Um, with folks about these issues, that's, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people who, who believe things that, that really don't have any basis in fact. When you put the chemical imbalance under a, a, a microscope, what do you see? How many of you have heard the term chemical imbalance and have an idea what it is? Raise your hands, hold them up. Now, almost everybody in the room. How many of you know what lisinopril is? Ooh, just a scattering of hands, yeah. 
Now, the reason why I ask that is, is that lisinopril is the number one antihypertensive drug prescribed in the United States today, and almost none of you know about it. But everybody in the room knows about chemical imbalance, and you ask the question, well, why in the world is that the case? Well, because the National Institute of Mental Health and some pharmaceuticals companies spent millions, hundreds of millions of dollars educating anybody, everybody in the country to believe that if you're sad and it lasts more than two weeks, that you were depressed and you would benefit from taking medicine. And the reason why you're sad is because of a chemical imbalance. That, that, that was a, an amazing educational effort in the United States for 30 years. Now, what does it look like? The catecholamines in your head, norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. Those are the substances that exist between the um, ends of the nerves that come up from the periphery, you know, come from your fingertips, go all the way up into your spine, up your spine, and into your head, and then meet with the cells in your brain. That is the substance that's in between that does the communicating. And the theory is, is that if, you, uh, if you're anxious or depressed, that there is, or schizophrenic at times, they will even say this, that, or have said it, I don't think they believe it anymore, um, that it was an imbalance of those chemicals in your brain that caused it. And so the, it, it's a theory that says that one of the chemicals is too high or too low, and it was supposed to cause depression or anxiety disorder. Again, it is only a theory. It has only ever been a theory. It has never been proven in scientific fact. So. Um, now, uh, an important thing is that a counselee doesn't need to discontinue drugs to, to be in or to continue um, counseling. You should never get that idea in your head. Um, and you always need to keep in mind that there are chemical abnormalities in the body that do affect behavior, as we talked about pica and thyroid disease. Now, we're going to skip F because out of respect to time, and you can read those questions on your own. I want to get down to E, which says your primary goal in counseling is not to get the person off medication, is it? No. What is your primary goal in counseling? Anybody here know what the prime directive is? Huh? What? No, I'm talking about Star Trek now. <laughs> what's, the, what's the prime directive? Huh? Non-interference, yes, absolutely, non-interference, entirely correct. And, and what was the joke about the whole program? What did they do all the time? Did they interfere? Yeah, if they hadn't interfered, there wouldn't have been anything to watch. Now, what is the prime directive for believers? Yes, what is the prime directive for believers? It's 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. That's the primary goal. Our goal is to glorify God with our lives as we counsel others and to enable them to do the same. That's our primary goal, to see them grow in the Lord, to glorify God in the process. It is not to get people off medicine. I smile and say that if your main goal in counseling is to get people off medicine, you have an idol of the heart problem, don't you? Yes, entirely. All right. Now, you need to be prepared to respond carefully when your counselee raises questions about getting off their medication or reducing it. As my counselee, uh, you know, the first day in, she just wanted to stop abruptly, and I told her no. And I'll tell you this, in the 16 weeks, and that was it, 16 weeks that I counseled this woman, I never talked to her about it again. Never. We didn't talk about her medicine again. 
Like, and, I, and I know that at least a couple years afterwards, she wasn't taking it anymore. And I had absolutely nothing to do with that other than the changes that she made in her life as a result of the biblical principles that we applied to the way that she was living. I didn't, I mean, there wasn't any arm wrestling about whether it was right or wrong or good or bad or anything. We didn't talk about it again. And I tell you that because I want you to get the role of medicine in its proper place in your counseling. It is not, it is not why the counselee is there. They didn't come to you to see you because they're taking a pill. They came to you because their life is a wreck. You know, so get in there and help with the wreck. Now, why do they want to stop? Generally, counselees want to stop for three reasons. Uh, one is the cost. You know, most of, unless they're on a generic medicine, most of them cost two or three hundred bucks a month, and you know that's a significant penalty. Uh, then there's side effects, uh, significant side effects associated with all the medications that are uh, currently used in. Uh, Psychiatry, even though they're, even though we're told, they, as I said, I think in the last era it's only five to ten percent. It's really fifty to sixty percent, and sometimes more. Um, and then the last one is people is the medical resume effect. They don't want, uh, they don't want it in their medical record that they have been treated for a psychiatric problem. And that's because, of course, we are all confident that since you know they passed the Affordable Care Act, that our records are far more secure in electronic medical record storage. Then, then, then they, you guys don't believe that? Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I used to say that if you wanted to steal somebody's medical records, what you needed to do was hire a burglar, and he would have to break a window and crawl into the, uh, to the, to the office, take a crowbar, Jimmy open the locked file cabinet, find the file, and physically steal that file. That's a hard job. And if you want to steal somebody's electronic medical record, all you need is some 17-year-old kid in the Ukraine now. I mean, that's what happened to Target, you know, as a 17-year-old kid in the Ukraine who busted their code. All right, so um, learn their reason for wanting to stop. Then explain to the counselee, which is what I did with my counselee. I told her that we had a lot of work to do before we could even talk about that. Uh, you know, everything about her behavior and the way that she lived needed to change. And if she stopped her medicine there, she'd just be in the same kind of wreck that she was in when she went to the doctor in the first place. So you, you work on the part of the problem that needs work first. And, and then, uh, you know, you tell her that you'll deal with it later. And then only discuss stopping medication when you're convinced that the person has replaced the use of medication with biblical principles, that their life actually has changed, that, it's, that, they're, that they're living according to Scripture. And, when, and when, you're, when you're convinced they can come off, you need to send them back to the doctor who started them. Now, um, the, um, here's how I do it. Uh, I, this is what I tell counselees. They've, you know, they've been in counseling maybe for three to six months. They're, they are living better. They're doing better. They're in a small group. They have people to hold them accountable who are around them. They're in a good church where the Bible is preached and taught every Sunday morning, and they're there. They're invested in Christian service and all that. And so then I say, well, it's, it's time. Now, you go back to your doctor and you tell him this. Doc, I, I want to thank you for the help you gave me when I came. And, and they should. You know, I want to thank you for the help that you gave me when I came. But, Doc, I've been counseling now for six months to a year, 
and my life is radically different. And what I really want to know is, do I need to take this medicine for the rest of my life? Would you help me take a, would you help wean me off this medication slowly? So, and that's the, those are important words. And, you know, wean me off this medication slowly so that I can find out if I need to take it or not. And almost any doctor worth his salt, anyone, anyone who is, is experienced and understands will agree. Uh, if the physician refuses, there might be two reasons. One, um, they, they aren't very experienced. Or two, uh, the patient might have uh, manic depression or schizophrenia. You know, and, and, and I can tell you that if they've had manic depression or schizophrenia and been psychotic, then almost no physician will agree to take them off the medicine. Um, and if the doctor refuses and they aren't manic or uh, schizophrenic, then they probably need a second opinion. I, would, I wouldn't say they have to get a new doctor, but they need a second opinion about the matter. And then we, you, need to keep a check with the patient for, or the counselee uh, for a reasonable period of time afterwards. I'd say it's more like uh, two to three months as opposed to three to four weeks. Then, then in the process of counseling, you need to speak about the heart and life issues that got them there in the first place. You know, what got this woman into the situation that she was in? Well, it was the idol of her heart, was it not? You know, the whole, at the whole bottom of it was that nasty desire on her part to get her ex-husband back. That was what was driving her to distraction. And I, I listened to her story, and I looked at her, and I, I said, you know, I think you can get entirely better. In fact, I'm convinced of it. But you need to be willing to say one sentence. And, and she was the first lady that I ever said the sentence to. I, and and I've, I've, I've taught it and told it to counselees for years since. And the sentence was, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. If you haven't written that down, you might want to. I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. More than I want my ex-husband back. More than I want to be skinny. More than I want to feel good. I want, I, I want to glorify God with my life more. Uh, you know, counselees who are willing to say that can and do change. Counselees who refuse to say it, in my experience, never do because they hang on to that idol of their heart. They keep dragging it around. It's chained to their leg as they, as they move through life. So her heart had to change uh, by God's grace from being focused on herself and the loss of her husband to living in a way that pleased God. That was how, how it was going to work. It would mean for her that she must come to believe that she was going to glorify God in the way that he wanted to be glorified. It's God who decides how we glorify him, not us. And, and, and so then I took her to Matthew 22, 37 through 39. What does it look like for us to glorify God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and then love your neighbor. It doesn't say that we have to love ourselves. That was entirely the woman's problem. You know, the idea that this lady had a self-esteem deficit was ludicrous. The only person that she esteemed in the universe was herself. Yes, and everybody else was paying the freight on it. So she had to love God more. Love God more than getting her ex-husband back. Love God more than being skinny. Love God more than feeling good. She had to love God more. And then it is indeed God who decides what loving him looks like, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So I took her to John 14 where it says, he who has my commandments in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. Yes. You know, the indicatives of grace are great things, but eventually it does come down to the imperatives. Yes, we were going to go through her life with a fine-tooth comb. She agreed to this. 
And we were going to go through her life with a fine-tooth comb and pick out the things that had gotten her in the mess that she was in and show her what the Bible said about what she was doing and then encourage her and help her by God's grace, by God's grace, to make those changes. She desperately needed to know that God loved her and because he did, she could depend on his enablement through this trial, and she could. So then we went through those behaviors. We recast all those behaviors that she had had picked up over the years. Uh, we, had, we, we helped her to look at them from a Romans 6 viewpoint. Romans 6 is a great chapter if you're looking at uh, coming from the slavery of sin and to the freedom of God's grace. Because uh, Paul says in Romans 6.16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Christians have the unique ability to choose. You know, the advantage that believers have over unbelievers when confronting any and all kinds of DSM-5 diagnoses or diagnoses is that we can choose. I don't know that they can so much. They are dead in trespasses and sins. Paul said, should we go on continuing in sin that grace may abound? What was his response? God forbid that we should even think like that. No, no. We, we can look at sin and say, as James McDonald often does, I'm dead to that. I've died to it. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. So we encouraged her to start looking at all these behaviors in her life that she, she was chained and, and imprisoned and enslaved by uh, in just that way. We had her take a look at her eating it from a different light. Now, what of the Big Ten commandments was she breaking by starving herself? What, what one of the Big Ten, huh? Oh, entirely. Yeah, it's, it's just so clear, isn't it? I, I mean, you know, if you, if, you know if, if you said that in most clinics that deal with anorexic, they'd look at you like you lost your mind. But, but that's exactly what's going on, isn't it? Yes, this person is killing themselves, you know, a half a bite of time or whatever. But, but that's exactly what she was doing. And so we, we said, you're going to have to eat. We're going to keep track of it, which is entirely the opposite direction that anybody else does this. And her sister, the nurse, was going to keep track of it. And we'd wear. We did all those things, all those things that weren't right. I know that they say aren't right. And, um, uh, <clears throat> and it was because she could not kill herself. Thou shalt not murder. Um, she, and she did well with that. Ate and gained weight. You know, it, 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 it ceased to be, a, it eventually ceased to be a problem. Uh, she wouldn't sleep in her own bed. Why do you think she wouldn't sleep in her own bed? Huh? Yeah, her husband wasn't there. She didn't want to wake up in the morning and her husband wasn't there. And so we, we, then, we, then there was another one in the Big Ten. It was something about envy and coveting. Yeah, that's right. Envy, envy and coveting. You know, so we, you know, the next assignment was that she had to go sleep in her own bed at night. Besides that, sleeping on the couch all the time made her back hurt. Something about taking care of your temple or something like that anyway would come to apply. Um, she wasn't going to church. I, I, I'm always impressed by the fact that, that people who are in, you know, Christians who are in great trouble, uh, you know, what are the first three things they quit doing? You know, they, they, they quit going to church, they quit reading their Bibles, and then they quit praying. You know, it, it's like watching a man on fire running away from the lake. Yeah, the water's over here. And, and she would tell me things like, well, it makes me nervous to be around people. And, and I, I was ruthless about it. I, you know, I, I told her, unless you have a measurable fever or you're vomiting, you're going to church. Yes. Why? Because the Bible says you shall not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, period. And I told her there was probably a really good reason why she didn't want to be among God's people, and that was what? 
Try conviction. Yes, that's right. When she was around the people of God, it con her behavior convicted her. And then beyond that, she needed to be someplace where she could hear the word of God taught and preached. She needed to be someplace where there would be people around her who would love her and who would pray for her and who would be concerned about her. And besides that, most people who tell me that they don't feel good enough to go to church are usually in the parking lot of Walmart by noon on most Sunday mornings. Yeah, I've met them there, so have you. Don't feel like going to church. And then I would, then I would tell her, you know, you're going to feel miserable one place or the other. You know, you're either going to be feeling miserable at home or you're going to be feeling miserable at church, so go to church. <laughs> ah, wait a second, yes. Then, she wasn't reading her Bible and praying, so we encouraged her to view that as spiritual anorexia, wasn't it? The newborn veins are supposed to desire the sin milk of the word so that they can grow thereby. It was three chapters a day and four on Sunday. I'm, I'm on a jihad for three chapters a day and four on Sunday because most of the counselees who come in to see me when I ask them to turn to the Gospel of John, where do you think they go first in the Bible? These are Christians now. Where do you think they go first? They go to the table of contents, yes, which means what? They haven't read their Bibles enough <laughs> to know where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are. They don't know. We, we, it is amazing to me. We live in a day and age when people who are Christians think that, that, that we are part of an organization in which they have no need to study the, the basic concepts of the faith at all. So, I, you know, as counselors and as individuals, three chapters a day and four on Sunday, you know what, that, know what happens if you do that? Tell me what happens. The whole Bible in a year, yes. And you know what happens when you do that 25 years or 30 years or 40 years? You know something. Yes, you know something. You know the stories. You know the scriptures. So that was the next assignment. Three chapters a day and four on Sunday. I, I, I encourage it to your attention. Then lead your counsel. Oh, I'm not done yet. Hold on. Um, she was not working, and everyone else in her family was taking care of all her problems and, you know, and all the stuff that she needed to be doing. They were taking care of her kids. They were doing her laundry. They were cleaning her house. She was on disability, and I'm a taxpayer in the state of Indiana, and so I, I felt it my duty. I, you know, I, it was my duty to get this woman a job. And, and it was kind of tricky, but I got the job done, and, and the job we got her was in a family business. And the family business was a donut shop. <laughs> the irony of it, yes. Yes, the irony of it. Um, she had to admit that pursuing her ex-husband was covetousness, and, and so she did, and she stopped. I told her, you know, he's married to someone else. The Bible says you can't marry him again. I would certainly hope that no pastor on the face of the earth would take a saved woman and marry her back to an ex-husband who was unsaved. It is the definition of the unequal yoke. Yes, we should at least have common sense about it, even if she didn't at the time. Then... The uh, last thing was that she was a user. Um, you know, I hate to say it, but people who are in the grips of anorexia are users. They, they use everybody around them. And so we put her to Christian service. Uh, it was, um, and this is good for all depressed patients, two hours a week for someone who was worse off than they are, someone from whom they can take nothing. Um, and it has to be a person, not doing uh, grass or windows at church, an individual, and they will do this the rest of their life. This Christian service. Um, the, um, 
I, my statement about it that I wanted to put in my book that the editor refused to let me do was that it, it gets the individual's nose out of their own belly button and into the lives of other people. You know, it helps them to see that there are people who are worse off than they are. So, Christian service. All right, then, now I can change that. I've been trying for a while. Lead your counseling in analyzing the issues of the heart that produced or contributed to their struggle, the idolatry of their heart. Um, useful resources in, in this are um, When People Are Big and God Is Small. That was the book that I had her read by Ed Welch, and she hated it. She did, and the reason why she hated it was people were big and God was small. Yes, it was an indictment of her whole way of living. Another good book is Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. I, I encourage you, and both those books are good. Then we brought the gospel to bear on her thoughts and her actions and her emotions. There were lots of places in this anorectic lady's life where, where the gospel found application, but the one place that I think was most important for her was that this woman was genuinely loved. She was genuinely loved by God. She was genuinely loved by her Savior. At a time in which she thought that the only person on earth that she wanted to love her didn't. You know, a woman who couldn't live without a man who didn't love her was genuinely loved by God. As Paul would say in Colossians 3.12, as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and gentleness. Beloved. That's what we're called. Beloved. We're not accepted. We're not tolerated. We're not put up with. We are loved. So, then, the biblical goal in this lady's situation was uh, for her to become more like Christ through the problems. It is the heart of Romans 8, 28 and 29, isn't it? Yes, it is. And what does Romans 8, 28 and 29 say? And we know, yes, and we know. We're going to operate on what we know, not how we feel. And we know that all things, all. You know, if you do a really good word study on that word all in the Greek, do you know what it, do you know what it means? All. <laughs> That's exactly it. All. All things, good, bad, or indifferent. All things work together for good. To those who love God, that means it only works for Christians. That's why biblical counseling really, you know, you can do biblical counseling evangelism, but unsaved people, you, you can't ask them to do the things in Scripture that, that, that we can ask Christians to do. For those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And that's where the rub comes in. You know, most of us are good if God would give us everything that we want, but he gives us what we need, doesn't he? And what is his purpose? His purpose is in verse 29. I don't think I knew what verse, I didn't know there was a verse 29 until I got into biblical counseling. I, I just knew verse 28 and just part of it. All things work together for good. Walked around with a smile on my face saying it to people whose lives had just been destroyed. And they hated me. But, so what is the purpose? You know, that, that we might be conformed to the image of his son. Yes, God wants to use all things in our lives as a sandpaper of life to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what his purpose is. His purpose is not for us to be happy, wealthy, healthy, and wise. His purpose for us is to be more like Christ entirely. Romans 8, 28 and 29 is the dividing line. It's the dividing line between... Um, psychology, psychiatry, integrative Christian counseling, and biblical counseling. The difference, if you're, in, if you're in the other camp, 
um, or if you come at it from the other viewpoint, is that everybody is a victim. You know, from a medical viewpoint, people are victim of diseases. From a psychological viewpoint, generally people are victims of what other people have done to us. And then what do we try to do? Well, in medicine, we try to negotiate a way or a pill that they can take to make them feel better. And in psychology, we try to help them figure out a way to get even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cease, don't be a victim anymore, you know, fight back, whatever. In, in biblical counseling, we're looking at people becoming victors in Jesus Christ. Yeah, living in a Philippians 2 way, not, not, in a, not in a Romans 12 disobedient way where it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. All right, then. Okay, so the goal is for the patient to become more like, or the counselee to become more like Christ through their daily problems, to handle and respond to those problems in a way that pleases him. The Bible has certainly promised us victory in difficult situations where feelings cannot change or it's not possible. Would you all like to know what happened to the anorectic lady? Come back after lunch. Mm -hmm. No, I won't do that to you. You know, but I should. I really should. Well, her RN sister that thought I was crazy after the first hour, she's now an ACBC certified counselor. The lady in question has been back to work for years and eating normally. Um, she um, did give up on chasing her ex-husband and eventually met a nice fellow in, in Awana, working as an Awana worker, and, and they're married. And uh, then she, um, she got a job as a home health aide. Her original Christian service, we sent, she went off and read to little old ladies in the nursing home. That was what she did. And so then when she went out to get a real job, when, when she left the donut shop, they, um, she got a job as a home health aide taking care of little old ladies. And the first little old lady that she took care of was um, uh, sick. Uh, and she uh, died in about two weeks, not a reflection on her care, just the reflection on her health. And, but during that period of time, during that two weeks, um, that counselee uh, talked to that woman and figured out that she didn't know the Lord. She was unsaved, and she was dying. And so during that two-week period of time, she shared the gospel with her. And before it was over, that woman accepted Christ as her Savior. Think about the difference in the way it was on the day she showed up and on that day. And then a couple weeks later, her, um, she went back to pick up the durable equipment at the, at the patient's home. And the um, family was there, and they were cleaning out the house, and they were all very down because uh, they were Christian people, and they knew they thought Aunt Ethel had died and split hell wide open. You know, that's that's what they thought. And so then again, she had the privilege of uh, giving that family the comfort of knowing that their loved one was in heaven right then. I can tell you that the Word of God is quick and powerful, and is sufficient to uh, to help people who uh, struggle in life. So I would encourage you to use it. And then the other thing I would, I would leave you with is, is don't do your counseling by labels. You know, I, I think the most important, one of the most important things I did for that woman when she came in was I refused to be bound by the labels that she brought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I come before you now and I thank you for salvation and I thank you for your word that it, it speaks and applies to the problems that our hearts have. God, I, I pray it, it has, I, I thank you that it has the ability to help even the most difficult situations that people live in. Lord, I pray that uh, you'd give us wisdom as we seek to use these principles to help others. And God, I ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Copyright 2016, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.